Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. I must have about a dozen lives because I could have been dead many times over again. And it wasn't just me, other people. But from the transport of 800 approximately who left Auschwitz to Mühldorf after a few months, just a few of us left alive. Our guest today is Stephen Nasser, the author of My Brother's Voice. Mr. Nasser shares his story of growing up in Eastern Europe, having his family moved to the Nazi ghettos and then taken to Auschwitz, how he and his brother made their way to another work camp and the promise he made to his father and brother that kept him alive. Mr. Nasser faced a heartbreaking journey of loss, but still shares with us his life and messages of hope, love, and optimism. Let's go listen to the inspiring words of Mr. Stephen Nasser. Anyway, good morning and say hello to everyone. Good morning. Is they okay? It's uh, great to have you with us um, and glad to have everyone back together here again after a, a short break. Uh, we have Stephen Nasser with us. He is the author of My Brother's Voice, which if you watch the video, you saw a bit of the highlights of that, of some of his stories from that. The book really goes into a lot more detail of a period of your life right up to your exit from Hungary to come this direction. <laughs> and then there's a second book, Journey to Freedom, that picks up the rest of your life uh, later. And so you really did an amazing job uh, in that first voice of capturing a lot of your diary and a lot of your experiences. Uh, I'd like to go back to the beginning to early life and and hear a little bit of what life was like in Hungary. I think your family was successful. You ran into some minor bullying from time to time, uh, some anti-Jewish sentiment, but it, it was minor as to what would come ahead when the Nazis would come in. How much did your family know and talk about what was going on in Germany and what the threats were to your world. Is that something you talked about a lot in your home or was it just something far away? Well, of course, it was just about on my father's agenda almost every day. What is happening? We couldn't, of course, we didn't have, there was no TV then and uh, we were forbidden to listen to the BBC, which was British Broadcasting. And uh, if anybody got caught listening to the radio, they got arrested. And we very quietly were listening to the BBC all the time, but not for long, because the Hungarian Nazis, they, uh, they uh, created a law that all Jews had to abandon radios. So we had got rid of our radio and we couldn't listen to the BBC. As a matter of fact, it happened once because uh, we got many air raids in Budapest during the war, bombing and such. And one night we were listening, we were 
wanted to listen to the radio because the radio always broadcast ahead that uh, planes, enemy planes approaching Budapest, everybody goes down to the shelter for cover. That we could not listen to, so I went down two stairs in the uh, building where we lived at the carekeeper who was a Gentile and they had radios. I remember his name was Mr. Grexa. And I was listening uh, to the radio down at his apartment. Of course, I had to have my yellow star on me because all Jews had to wear the yellow star. And while we were listening, somebody knocked on the door and two SS soldiers appeared in full uniform. And one assessment said, are you the housekeepers here? They said, yes, we are Mr. and Mrs. Grexa, of course, in Hungarian. So that was okay. He said, we are looking for the Nassers. Where are they living? On the second floor, he said. So they looked at me with the yellow star. Hey, Jew boy, who are you? So I did say, my name is Pishta Nasser. Pishta was my nickname. That's what, that's what I use all the time. They got to me, grabbed me by the jacket, pulled me up and said, take me up to your apartment. And they put the Luger revolver right in my back and started me, march me upstairs, which I had to. Then I rang the doorbell. My mother opens the door and with amazement to see the two Nazis behind, she was shocked. So the Nazis pushed me through the door. I almost fell and with the gun, they were waving and they looked around and he said, you damn Jews. And then my mother said, my God, I think I recognize you to one of the Nazis. And he looked at her. He said, oh, that's right. I was in your store purchasing something and you served me. So anyway, he eased up a little bit. He put his revolver away. The other one still had his revolver. And he looked around and he grabbed his small box, which I always had prepared for air raids to take with me because I had my very important stamp collections in there. He just grabbed that box and the other one pushed him away. He said, okay, we're going to leave him alone. Let's go. And they left our apartment. Of course, we were shaking. It was just one incident. In those days, we were still able to go to school with a yellow star. And in our class, we only had three Jewish boys because every year they only took very small percentage of Jews. And for us to become one of the students 
in the school, we had to be straight A in elementary school. Then in the school, we tried to study as hard as we can. And because most of the time we were good students, the people started to hate us, the Jew boys, the teacher's pet. We weren't teacher's pet, but we studied very hard. And that was against us. And there was one incident, what I would like to point out. Just before we were taken away from our school, this uh, school buddy of mine, his name was uh, Jula Sondi. I still remember his name. A blonde kid, good-looking kid, blue eyes. And he came to me and with kind of hatred he looked at me, I hope you Jews all get killed, including your family. And that was the last time I went to school. Then we were taken away. After many years, right now I'm jumping, all the concentration camp, everything. When I came back to Hungary, and eventually I went back to the same school. Of course, I lost one year. And who do I meet? That same guy, Jula Sondi. And all the hurt that how every one of us got killed, including what happened to all the Jews and innocent, many other people, even Gentiles. I said to him, push him on his shoulder. I said, defend yourself. And I started with my fist pounding at him. I really beat him up. And the principal was called, and they wanted to throw me out of school. And then I got to him, I said, okay, Mr. Serdai, that was the principal name. I know you were a Nazi, a Nazi sympathizer, an anti-Jew. Okay, go ahead, throw me out. I do have an uncle who is serving of a chief detective in the force, and he'll take care of you. Anyway, to make a long story short, everything was settled. And would you believe that Sondi Dura, he became one of my best friends. And of course, he did apologize. He said, I didn't know what I was talking about. My parents brought me up hating the Jews and I just followed what they said. But now I realize, but we became good friends. That's just how it goes. But the rest of in Hungary, before we were taken away, we were a very close family. And in my memory, I cannot think anything drastic what happened within my brother, my father, my mother and I, because we really felt and we really lived love towards each other. To me, it was very important, the family. And of course, now I lost them all. Actually, I didn't lose them. We were only separated because I believe they watching me up there. 
And like I promised my brother before he died, because he did request me something. He said, Pista, that was my nickname. After I'm gone and I'll be up there, would you like us to be happy or miserable? I said, what kind of a question is that? Of course, I would love to see all of you happy if I could. He said, very simple, keep a smile on your face, even after I'm gone. And as long as we see you smiling, we'll be happy, we'll be smiling back at you. And that I never forget, because I live my life every day that way. I have a smile on my face. Sometimes I do have a couple of tears dropping out, but still, eventually, I will join my family and we'll be happy ever after. It's just a thought. In concentration camp when I was 13, with my brother work, working very hard, I never thought I was going to be age 14. The chance of survival, survival was very slim. And if somebody would have told me, Pishta, you're going to reach age 90. Probably I would have dropped that from the shock. But here I am, age 90, and still talking. I'm, I'm glad you're still telling your story. It is incredible to uh, have a chance to hear you tell that. And I'm glad you've shared what you have in the book and in the video. Uh, the book is filled with stories of resilience and where you took um, gambles and took risks. Uh, you know, one of those early on was when you first arrived in Auschwitz and you snuck your brother and you into a group that would eventually, that would leave that day from Auschwitz and head to Muldorf. You didn't know where you were going, but I guess you just felt like it was better than where you were. Anywhere was going to be better than where you were. What, 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 what were you, uh, what were you feeling and thinking at that time when you snuck your way into that work group? I still remember quite clearly, but here I want to make a comment. Before we were taken away, my brother was my hero. He was my idol. I adored him. And uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I was a little pest to my brother because I hung on to his coattail. I wanted to play soccer when he played soccer, all the rest. But uh, I adored him a lot. He was my leader. And somehow, like some other people mentioned, it looked like the role changed when we got into the camp. I was mischievous. I was looking around for better opportunities for survival. And actually, in a certain way, Andrish was following me because I made certain decisions way ahead. Like at that time, we were in Auschwitz, and we knew we were going to stay in Auschwitz. And then I saw this group of people separated by a rope and asked one of the guys, what you guys doing here? 
and he said, oh, we will be shipped out of Auschwitz to somewhere else. So I figured anywhere has to be better than in Auschwitz with the gas chamber smoking and all the rest. And I mentioned to my brother, and uh, then while we were standing the wrong side of the rope, and I said to these two people, they were talking in Hungarian on the other side of the rope, the ones who were going to be taken away. And he said, God, I wish we weren't here because we don't want to leave Auschwitz. We have a couple of cousins here. So I looked around. I said, tell you what, quickly, duck under the rope and we exchange because they didn't take names, they only counted people. So the count was still the same. And that's how we were able to get away from Auschwitz. But one thing what my brother and I did not know, that we were going to this concentration camp called Mühldorf. Mühldorf, they were building a huge, I mean huge underground factory with trains running into the building. It was approximately two stories deep and the top cover was a solid cement 15 feet thick of concrete and uh, barbed wires. I mean, not barbed, rebarbs. It's very strong. Even the heaviest bomb could not that facility and the Nazi built it because most of the infrastructures and structures and factories were bumped to the ground. So they were going to make a last stand and develop this factory here. That's where we were taken and we had to work. We were outside of Dachau and we were Dachau's work camp. Now, this I learned after the war, which I didn't realize, I experienced it, but didn't know. The average life expectancy of a prisoner in Mühldorf, when I was, after they entered, was about 31 days. These are not my figures, but these are figures what I seen quoted. The camp was extremely hard labor. At the beginning, we worked seven days a week from early morning till late at night. Very little food, lots of beatings. About eight months in, in the camp, finally they allowed us not to work on every Sunday. And every third Sunday we got off. That was a big plus. But life was very, very harsh. When we got up early in the morning, we had to stand outside the barracks, what we call appeal. Even though we were not working, we had to line up in lines and the countdown came. The couples which were prisoner police, usually not Jewish, but political prisoners in a little different 
arm band on them. And they had to count us down. Then they had to report it to the SS. And if anybody was missing, that was a disaster because we had to stand in attention for an hour or so until they counted for the missing prisoners. I remember this particular day, we were lining up and one prisoner was missing. Then the Nazi said, okay, so one of you missing. Step forward, anyone who knows what is going on. If not, we're going to punish most of you. So nobody knew what happened to the prisoners. We couldn't stand forward. Then the Nazi came into the rows of prisoners, a few hundreds of us lining up, and he counted 10. He walked by and he counted Einstein dry in German, and the 10th person he pulled out. That person was put in front of the prisoners, and there was a big, uh, like, portable table, similar what we can open, portable tables. They pulled him over, like hog-tied him. He had to bend over the table and his arm across the table underneath. They tied it to his feet, and with a leash, they give him 25 leash. Most of them passed out. And then they said, okay, any report, anybody can tell me where is that prisoner? So it, the line was, the countdown was getting closer to me. And as I stood in attention, looked sideways, I tried to count, and I thought, my God, I'm nine. I'm not going to be beaten. My brother was number eight in that count. But I made a mistake. I was number 10. They pulled me down, done the same thing to me with the lashes. And I remember I passed out after about seven lashes, full of welts and blood and everything. They got me uh, back again, splashed water in my face, and I have to stand there all bleeding and beaten. That was a horrible day to start our work. But of course, we had to go to work. Marching to work, it took about, I guess about maybe two and a half to three miles from the barracks to workplace. And we had to go through beautiful Bavarian forest. The forest was lovely. I remember as a boy scout because I was scouting most of my young life, I thought, what a beautiful place to pitch a tent. But at the end, we got to our workplace, where we had to carry cement bags. These cement bags were made out of paper, paper bags, approximately, I would say, 50 to 75 pounds, very hard to lift. And in one particular episode, I had to carry these cement bags from the ground up on a ramp to about one, one and a half story high 
where the cement mixers were. And I was carrying these cement bags. Eventually, I couldn't stand the weight and I collapsed. And on the ramp, as I collapsed, of course, the brake broke. And I was laying down. This SS ran over and started to kick me. Verfluchte Jude, you lousy Jew, get up and start working again. And I remember the commander of that uh, concept, who was not in the German army, but he was in charge of the construction. He got over, he looked at the SS, he pushed him aside. And in German, I understood. He said, what do you want him? He's a young boy. He collapsed that cement bag is too much for him. Should give him some other job. And he picked me up in his arms. He took me up the ramp and he laid me down near cement bags, my head resting on a broken cement bag upon the structure. And I was bleeding all around. And I remember looking at my brother as he came up and down with the cement bags. And he was very worried. But I got a tremendous beating at that time. And afterwards, I don't want to get into it. It's in the book. But beatings after beatings. I think I must have been, never mind one cat, I must have had about a dozen lives because I could have been dead many times over again. And it wasn't just me, other people. But from the transport of 800 approximately, who left Auschwitz to Mühldorf, after a few months, just a few of us left alive. Because every time the number dropped below the requested, they took some prisoners from Dachau and always had full capacity in that work camp to keep on working. So that is just another episode. And there is one more what I would like to mention. One day we were marching back from the work camp to the barracks, which I imagine I mentioned it was about two and a half, three miles. And of course, by that time, Everybody was starving and we tried to take if we found mushroom on the ground or anything to eat. And as we were going through this path, finding back and forth in the forest, I noticed the head of the, of the lines of our uh, 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 people, there was a red berry bush. I seen it. And I said to Andres, Andres, we're going to have some berries. By the time we got to the berries, the bush was completely empty, not one berry. And I remember I rebelled against God. I was furious. What kind of a God are you? Even deny some lousy berries from starving children and I wasn't too nice about it. My brother gave me a big shove with his elbow. He said, Pishta, better be quiet because God works mysterious ways. 
I shut my mouth. I was still grumbling. I wouldn't say it out loud. We went back our barracks and we climbed up to the second story uh, because we have double bunk beds. I climbed up to the top and eventually went to sleep. Following morning, tried to climb down from the upper bunk bed, hanging my feet and looking down. And that was very unusual on the cement floor between the uh, bunk beds, there was an aisle and there were some people laying. Some didn't move and some were just shaking. Then I looked into some bunk beds and some people lying around in very bad shape. Anyway, the berries were highly poisonous. They got poisoned. And I remember so clearly sitting on Tom bunk bed, hanging my feet over, closed my eyes, put my hand together. Dear God, I'm so sorry that I rebelled against you. Thank you for saving my life. I will never forget it. I will never say anything bad about you. But that was my personality. I did that. However, I would like to make one statement, one comment. During my life, if I need help, I will never ask for help, even your help, because you give me a brain so everybody else and we have to help ourselves. So I will take care of it. But if I make it, I'm going to thank you to give me the strength and the brain capacity to get over my problem. And I kept to that promise all the time. I never ask for help, anyone. If there is help, God give me enough brain instead of problems because everybody has problems. I don't believe I have problems. If I have a problem, I make it into a challenge and I know how to take care of a challenge. That was just one thing what the camp has taught me. And the camp also has taught me respect freedom, very important. And also respect family, also very important. Nowadays, in Norway, I'm going to get political, but our freedom is in danger. We have to be careful. I came away from communism. I can't stand it. We suffered through it. We knew what it meant to get free this and free that. Well, to get all that free, we have to give up our freedom. And freedom is more important than anything else. I'm very happy here in the United States. As a matter of fact, I traveled a lot on the first time. I took a plane many years ago and came back on the tarmac. Those days, we didn't have the walkways from and to the airplane. We had to walk down the stairs. So as I walked down from the plane, back in United States, I didn't care. I got on my knees and I kissed my ground 
because I appreciate what we have here. General Patton, Third Army, is the one who liberated me. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for the Americans and the Allies, we would be still in Nazi Germany. Of course, I would have been dead a long time ago. But we mustn't forget. I hope we believe in God, we believe in our country, and we believe in one and ourselves. Because we have to help each other. Like I usually say, life is very simple, but people make it difficult. And we are people. You touched on a story there at the concrete plant, and, and I want to hit another one in the book here, uh, an encounter with the cook who said, oh my God, did one man cause all these wounds? And without waiting for my reply, he began applying disinfectant on my body with fresh swabs. I wince when he cleans the open wounds. He worked on me for half an hour, cleansing and dressing my wounds. And when finished, he disappeared and this time brought back a cheese sandwich with butter and a cup of hot coffee and sugar. His kindness makes me feel guilty. You have several stories in the midst of all of this evil and all of this hate and all of this death. There were people who found the courage to be kind to you and several times saved your life. You know, what did, what did you learn from that from these folks who somehow found the courage to stand up to evil when it would have been easy to just go along? Well, to me, number one thing, what I learned, I don't care what shape, what color, what religion, what nationality you are. What really counts is what inside your own personality, your own character, and there are some people, even within the evil group, who have some humanity. And they exercise that sometimes, which was unexpected, because I never expect anything from anyone. Even today, my expectation is zero. And when I got just a little bit, I overwhelmed. But there are people who are nice to start with. And even today, or even those days, like for example, back in the camp, when I wanted to write my book, and I needed a pencil, I remember I had this little knife, what I sneaked in with me, and I was scratching and carving out of sandstone, and first I carved a dog's head, and then I drive, I uh, carved a horse's head. The horse's head came out very well. It was approximately maybe about three, four inches. And I said to my brother, this is going to be our meal ticket, and maybe I can get some pencils from the SS. The gentleman who was in charge of us, his name was Herr Herman. And 
I remember I showed him one lunchtime that little statue I carved, and he said to me, my God, that's beautiful. Where did you find it? I said, sir, I didn't find it. I carved it. You mean you carved that? I said, yes. Then he smiled. He said, could I have this? I said, it's all yours. And then he said, what would you like for it? I said, well, sir, if you can give me a little bit of extra food so I can share it with my brother, and if you could give me a couple of pencils. And he looked at me funny. Wait a second. What do you need pencils for? You're not in a school. You're in a concentration camp. You have to work here. I said, sir, I work hard, but the same way as I carved this statue, the same way I love to draw. Oh, you are a little artist. So he gave me a couple of pencils and some food for my brother. That uh, German uh, guard never ever hit us. Sometimes he scolded us, but he was humane. Because if the other Nazis would have noticed that how kind he was, probably they would have done something to him. But I found several times some people who did show certain amount of kindness. Like after my lectures, I usually tell people as far as being a human being concerned. And I said, like, here was one instance. It happened in Park City, Utah. I had a large gathering in a big theater probably way over a thousand people. And after I finished talking, and we cleared up, finished book signing, and this young man was just laying here, not laying, but walking around all on his own near my table. I said, can I help you? He said, with his head bent down, couldn't look at my face. He said, sir, I understand what you were talking about. It's very bad what they have happened to you and others. But I have to carry that burden on my shoulder. And that burden is very strong. I said, why do you carry your burden? He said, because I'm a German. So I looked up to him made sure we had eye contact. And I took my arm and I handed it to him. I said, hi, let's shake. you German and I'm a Hungarian. So what's the big deal? We had to be born somewhere. He said, but you don't understand. My grandfather was a Nazi. So I thought for a second, Okay, your grandfather was a Nazi. Are you a Nazi? He said, no, sir, no way. He said, I wish I could change what happened. But because I'm a German, I have to carry that burden. 
said to him, were you able to choose your parents when you were born? No. Were you able to choose which country you're going to be born into? No. Were you able to choose your religion, what you're going to be born into? He said, no, sir. I said, neither can I. He just showed we are all human beings. I don't care what color, race, religion, where you were born, we are human beings. And what counts is within ourselves. And I said, I feel bad for you, you carrying that burden. Let's see if I can ease that burden off from your shoulder. Because you feeling guilty for something that you have nothing to do with. And I got him close to me. I give him a big hug. And I said, as a Holocaust survivor, I hope I can leave the burden on your shoulder. Go in peace, you live well. He was hugging me, crying, and I felt very good about it too. You speak of carrying burdens, and somehow at the age of 13, you you chose to take on the burden of concealing what happened to your nephew and your aunt when you went back home, you know, what was, what was that like to carry that burden for 50 years? And how often did your uncle go back and try to find out what really happened? You know, how often did you feel the pressure to, to tell the truth or just how did you hold up to, to that at such a young age of being able to to take on that burden of, of not wanting to hurt him and let him know what you had seen. Okay, when I got back to Hungary, I was 14. That's when I met my uncle. My uncle Charles, he was drafted in to the Hungarian army before they took us away, before the Holocaust. And he had to fight on the Russian front. And when he came back, the war was over, and none of us were around. And when I returned and found him at the Nasser house, which was not ours anymore, and that's when he said, Pishta, everybody's gone. You're the only one. Please tell me what happened to my wife and my baby. And I lied to him. Uncle Charles, I'm sorry, I don't know. I know you were separated. But the truth is, in Auschwitz, not much after we arrived, my baby, well, my toddler uh, cousin was grabbed from my aunt's hand. He was killed dramatically, and the wife was also killed right afterwards. And I could not tell that to my uncle what happened. So for 50 years, why 50 years? I kept it a secret because my uncle died in 1996. And only after I was willing to publish my diary. Of course, my uncle lived in Hungary. And by that time, 
I lived in the United States. In the United States, I worked on my manuscript a lot to make sure by the time it will be published, it's in good shape. And we brought my uncle out to United States for a visit for two months. I took all my books and all my papers and took it up to the attic and hid them. And after he left and he passed away, I felt free to tell the story. As a matter of fact, the first time in 1997, I was invited to Perump, where I had my first lecture. Now what I'd like to show you, probably you've seen it before on the, on the film. This is how my diary looked like on paper pages, bound together by wire. But this what I show you, that it is not the original diary. The original diary got lost when we got liberated. I was unconscious, it was underneath, and I never recovered. I rewrote the diary in the hospital in Germany, in Hungarian. Then when I took it back, eventually I translated to English. I translated the diary to English in the 1950s. And that's what was published in 2003. After 50 years, it took me a lot tried to find a publisher. I had more rejection. I remember Simon and Schuster and everyone, they wrote back, well, it's a good story, but we have too many good stories. But eventually, the Las Vegas Review Journal here in Las Vegas, they read the diary and they said, my God, if anything should be on paper, this is it. Carolyn Huber, I remember she passed away since. She's the one who published it through the Las Vegas Review Journal. And after it was published, many years later, she wanted to make it into an audio book. So she hired, hired Max Click, a actor, who does voice transfers. And he's the one who read and on the, on the uh, audio book, he makes an excellent job of it. It seems like the audio book is being published all over. And aside of the two books and the audio book, I also wrote a play. I wrote a play in 2018. No, I'm sorry, 2012. We were called back to Hungary. Some German companies that said, Mr. Nasser, would you please return to Hungary to the Nasser 
house. And he said, we are having a surprise for you, some memorial plaques. So Francois and I flew back in front of the Nasser House in Budapest. We met this German artist and he laid down some memorial plaques cut into the stone of the sidewalk front of the Nasser House. He put down six plaques, one for my dad, one for my mom, one for my Aunt Bougie, one for my brother, and one for me. Those plaques are there forever, apparently. And when I saw those plaques, and I looked up, and I thought, these plaques motivated me, and I wrote a play. Now that particular play called Not Yet Pishta. And the reason for it, not yet Pishta, when I was liberated and pulled out unconscious from the boxcar, I was hallucinating, but I was in a coma. And I woke up in this American German hospital. And the nurse and the doctor asked me, I did speak some English because I studied at six years in school. And they asked me, who you were talking to? You were hallucinating. Who is Andres? I said, Andres is my brother. And they said, well, you were talking to him. What did he say? He said, I wanted to stay with him. I saw him, he was in heaven. And I wanted to stay with him. And he said in a strong voice, not yet, Pishta. That's what the name I give my play. The play was presented first time in 2017 here in Las Vegas. Then in 2018 in Kentucky and in 2020 in near uh, Salt Lake City in Draper in the theater. Here is what the program looks like. I don't know if you can see it. Yes, I can it's see it. That was here in Las Vegas. And here in Las Vegas, this is all the people who played in it. And they asked me, and I played myself as old Pista. Then it was the second one. This was put on stage in Kentucky. Also, a lot of people who were in the cast. And this was the one from Draper, Utah. 
they done a wonderful job. In Draper was supposed to be, it was scheduled for 13 performances and they sent us plane ticket to fly there and watch performance number nine. Unfortunately, after performance number three, the virus broke up, broke out and they had to discontinue the production. So I never saw the third production, but the write-up in that particular paper was tremendous front row review. They wrote many, many pages about the play. Now, of course, this was the Nasser house in Budapest. That's how it looks today. On the side of the house, beside the entrance, there is a plaque the Hungarians put it there. This house used to be occupied and built by the Nasser family. And that house, it's a recognized uh, monument in a certain way. Here are the plaques what the German artist installed. By the way, that picture came from the first uh, production of the stage play. I'm standing in front of it and I'm reciting what I had to say. And this is the time when I met the German artist in front of the house. That's when he was installing the stepping stone. This artist is very well known. His name is Gunther Domnick. He's a well-known artist internationally and he installed many of these stepping stones all around. If you have any questions, I'd be very happy to answer. Yes, we've got a, a couple here. Why don't we go to Steve Johns? unmute you, Steve. Thank you, Randy. We're way over time, so I don't want to take up uh, more time. I will say uh, thank you, Randy, for another really great lessons in leadership. And uh, Mr. Nasser, thank you for sharing your story and blessings to you and your family. Uh, thank you very much. Let's go to Kirsten. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That can't be easy. Um, we are truly grateful and humbled by your experiences and hope that we can learn from them and share it with others so that everyone can learn. Um, from what you have shared with us today. What is the significance of your medallion that you wear around your neck? Okay, I think I unmuted now. Yes, you are. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, this medallion, what you can see,
is a Hebrew letter high. Now that high means life, life for anyone. And probably most of you have heard about it, but you don't realize if you ever heard Fiddler on the Roof, the musical, where the rabbi sings, to life, to life, le high, um, to life, high, le high, um. and I noticed some people wear it, not Jewish people, and ask him, what's that? And they said, we don't know, but it's good luck charm. I said, well, what you are wearing means life. Of course, life is good luck. After the war, the Americans wanted to bring you back to the U.S., but you made your way back to Hungary first, where you fell in love, but something inside you still told you you needed to make your way to the U.S. And so another one of those brave leaps of faith, you went down to the Red Cross and and headed this direction. <laughs> yeah, that was, as I remember, it was quite a challenge and adventure because the American uh, commander, he liked me a lot. And he said, you come back with me to the US and some family can adopt you. Or maybe if you don't want to be adopted, you can live with them. So I just thanked him but and always wanted to have a uh, identification with a photograph. So in case if I go back, you know, I have some. He said, you don't need anything. I'll take care of all the paper when you come back with us to United States. One night I packed up, shall I say, I escaped. I didn't escape, I wasn't a prisoner, but I ran away from the American. And there was about close to 900 miles apart from Budapest. Well, my directions were always pretty good, but I also got a map and I went on that railroad station near uh, where we were in Seasopt and felt a thing. And on the railroad station, I went into through the tracks where there were some uh, cattle cars lined up. So I tried to get inquiry and somebody said, well, these cattle cars going to go back towards east. So I got on it and the cattle car started. I went as far as I could. And the next place where it stopped, I got out of the cattle car and ask again. And that's why I was able to get back to Hungary. But in one particular place, I met seven people, also refugees, Hungarians. And they said, God, we would love to go back to Hungary. We don't know how. I said, well, just follow me. If you follow me, you'll get back to Hungary. And we all did get back to Hungary. Of course, it was quite an adventure going through borders and many other things. At the end, I had to swim a river, but uh, I did get back to Hungary. Oh, I, I, I saw you 
Well, it's an incredible story, and uh, I'm grateful you spent an hour with us just now. I don't want to take up too much of your day, but it's been really inspiring to to hear what you have to say. And uh, people can learn a lot more from your book. There's a lot we didn't get to today, but they can order your book uh, uh, by um, online, right, at, at your site? Yes. Uh, they can order the book. There is two ways to get it. You can get it through Amazon, where uh, actually they print my book. Or if you want a signed book, you can get it through me. If you get in touch with me on my uh, uh, website, on my email, which is the name of my book without an apostrophe, my brother's voice at eol.com and if you get in touch with me i give you instruction how you can get a signed copy or you can get a string from amazon either way and if anybody emails me with any other questions you don't bother me because i get dozens of emails every week and i answer every one of them so I hope all of you have a great life and keep a smile on your face. Keep a positive attitude. Attitude means everything. And for someone to change my attitude, I, ch I challenge them because they're going to fail. Nobody going to change my attitude. I have a good attitude and I'm going to leave this world this way also. So God bless you all. Thank you so much, Thank Mr. Nasser. Thanks everyone for Thank joining. You. We'll see you uh, next week. Bye.